0: This episode sponsored by Copado. Copado is the first Salesforce delivery management solution and the number one native DevOps platform for Salesforce. Capado makes the jobs of Salesforce admins and developers fun and easy even in the largest, most complex works. Plan and collaborate on work, then track your changes right on the user story with an admin-friendly Git interface automate developments and testing, and track metrics so that you can target improvements. Capado DevOps 360 brings advanced analytics such as value stream mapping, executive summaries, and rich, interactive dashboards. These insights help you find inefficiencies and delight your users by delivering innovation faster than ever. Take the pain out of the Salesforce development process and make Salesforce development fun again with Capado. Hello, everybody. This is Xi Xiao. This is yet a new episode of Salesforce Web Podcast. Today I'm sitting with a wonderful guest with me. His name is Mark Seaman. Hello, Mark. Hello. Good to be here. Yeah, Mark. So, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Oh, gee, I could, I could try. So, my name is Mark, and uh, I'm, I live in Copenhagen, Denmark, which is where I'm calling in from right now. And um, I've been, I've been doing software development for, gee. 20, 25 years, something like that. I actually started out, I I have a university degree in in economics, uh, so I was not really, you know, wasn't really in in my plans to become a software developer. And then I sort of just stumbled on software development in the, in the mid-1990s and, and thought, hey, this is much more fun. So I basically just started doing that instead. So it's it was sort of like a gradual shift from I, – I actually started out working in the Danish Ministry of Economic Affairs. So I, um, I used my education a little bit, and then I sort of transitioned into software development from there. Um, so exactly how many years of software development experience I have is – It's a little bit fuzzy around the edges because it sort of gradually transitioned into that, but it's more, it's definitely more than, than, um, than 20 years. I got my first, you know, you know, job where it said software developer as the title in 1999. So it's been, it's been a while, but I did, I did software related things even before then. Mm. Um, Yeah. So it's been, it's been some time.
0: Yeah, So, so Mark, I ran into your Pluralsight courses. It's uh, yeah. about a solid principle, right? You teach people how to yes. write uh, object-oriented uh, programming language. That's right. Design those stuff. Yeah. And you got almost a 2,000 ratings with the average of 4.5 out of 5. That's like uh, amazing, you know. That's, I just wondered, good. how much money does this guy get from this one single course?
1: <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm allowed to speak about that, actually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's fine. But, you know, that's the first thing, first impression I get convinced. Okay, let's really check what's the, the course content. And the solitude was something I really wanted to learn, mm-hmm. but it's always in the book. You know, I, I I know what it's about, but how do I really use them mm-hmm. and how important is it, especially in the real life when we are busy, you know, we're writing the code for the customers, for most yeah, of our Salesforce yeah. uh, developers. Right. So that's the reason I want you to, you know, to come into my show and then have a conversation about it. So so solid, um, I understand it's like a five separate principles yes. that combined with the first letter, S. Uh, O-L-I-D, right? That's true. But it sounded very like academic things. Ah. It's like only the professors in the university wanted
1: to study that. (laughs) Right. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Um, Okay, so I think think the first thing we need to... uh, be sure that everyone understands is that I, I completely get the the point where if if it feels like you're very busy, uh, you may not feel that you have the time to dive into what you you know what you say. You know, it sounds like it's more like an academic thing, but it's it's mm-hmm. not really intended to be. Particularly academic, and it and it didn't actually grow out of universities. It's it's quite a practical um, set of, of of principles that that you know originally Robert C Martin tried to to put into some rules of thumbs. Um, but mm-hmm. I think what's what's really important here is that um, you you probably. Um, you tend to have more than one goal when you are a software developer because obviously you have this short-term goal that if someone, if your customer is asking you when when is the next feature done, when is the next feature done, um, mm. that's your short, short-term goal. And those... You know, solid principles, those you know principles of object-oriented design, they're probably not going to help you reach that immediate goal, you know, delivering a new feature in you know one week or in two weeks. Um, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if you know that you have to work on the same code base for years and years and years, you may also have experienced this um, phenomenon where... You know, when the when the code base is young, you can deliver new features fairly quickly. But then as the code base grows older and older, it becomes harder and harder to add new features because every time you try to add a feature or every time you try to fix a, a bug, um, something else breaks somewhere else in the code base because everything's sort of connected to everything else. So, you know, that's why we call it spaghetti code is because if you try to, mm-hmm. you know, pull one you know place it it affects something completely different uh in mm. in in the code base um, is that one type of uh technical debt so called? it it might definitely be you know a type of technical mm. debt um so so we um you know a good textbook or a good you know course about um, the solid principles should always start by saying what I'm about to say now is that you know you should only use those principles if you actually have the problem that they address because mm. you know it it you know sol- the solid principles aren't sort of like a fix it all you know set of, of, mm. of rules it they they're there to fix particular problems particularly around you know maintainability of you know code bases that tend to live. Mm. For a little bit of of a longer time, then what kind of problems does it really solve if we
0: just want immediate gain attraction on people
1: right yeah so i think I think one of the problems that it solves is exactly this this um, problem of diminishing returns where it gets harder and harder to add new features uh, so if you follow those you know they 're also known as the principles of object oriented design, so if you follow those mm-hmm. principles. If you do it right, it should become easier to add new features later on. Uh, so, with you know, without breaking the features that are already there, mm. um, with all sorts of caveats and, and sort of where you say, well, okay, it doesn't, you know, it's not a solve-all fix, uh, but it mm. it might just make it easier to maintain your code base uh, in the middle to long run.
0: But what you just mentioned—it sounds like uh, when your code is rigid which means it's really hard to move mm, around when yeah. when the customer has new uh, requirements, which usually is the case, right? Along yeah. the project, the customer yes. changes ideas, and you tell them back that, sorry, I can't change that because of this or that, which is a sign your code is already rigid. Yes, right? yes, exactly. And it could be something else like uh, you just already mentioned. When you change something here, then something else breaks. It's mm-hmm. like your code is really fragile, right? Yeah. So it's really hard to touch it. And uh, maybe also because in the code, there's this so-called complexity, right? If you have a lot of refails and uh, nested uh, uh, things, it's really hard to understand. So those things are also maybe part of these um, things, the a solid principle, yeah. to Yes, right. Well.
1: Yeah. So I probably spoke at a little bit of, of a too high uh, of a level of abstraction. But but as mm-hmm. you just mentioned, one of the um, one of the symptoms you see is that you know a lot of, of you know long methods that may run on for hundreds of lines of code and with lots of nested if statements where you have if and a for loop inside of the if statement and another if statement inside of the for loop and then another for loop and so on. You you probably seen mm-hmm. those. Everyone is we've all seen that sort of code. Um, and what often happens in that sort of code is that there are lots of different responsibilities that are sort of, you know, mixed in together with each other. Um, so you may have some responsibilities where um, part of that code goes and looks something up in a data store somewhere, and then another part of that code puts you know you know renders something on the screen, um, or performs some sort of business calculation, and and it's all sort of mixed in together, uh, which makes it really hard to. Figure out If you need to change one of those things, you sort of need to figure out, you know, which parts of the code do I actually have to change there? Okay.
0: So, Mark, let's start with the single responsibility principle because it's the S, right? Yes. So, you know, if we pull everything into one conversation here, um, then people get confused. Let's just start one by one. I understand point is that the five principles in solid, Mm -hmm. you have to learn them and apply them all together in your daily life. Then you get the most benefit out of that. Right. But for the learning purpose, it's better. Maybe we go through one by one. So let's start with the first S, which is a Mm -hmm. single responsibility principle. When I need to change something, I only need to go to one class. So one Mm -hmm. class is only responsible for one thing, which is a Unix Principle, right? In the Unix yeah, world, yeah,
1: that's that fits pretty well with the um, you know do one thing and do it well principle. Yes, okay. Exactly. So in
0: Salesforce, uh, we are familiar with one things called uh, separation concerns, which mm-hmm. was mentioned by Martin Fowler. Uh, yeah. at the beginning. So we know in Salesforce we always separate us like a service layer, domain layer, select layer. And then we kind of in each layer, we have multiple small classes responsible mm-hmm. for certain uh, responsibilities. So for this so-called single responsibility principle, mm-hmm. we are kind of familiar and we really use this separation of concerns mm-hmm. to, to drive our design of yeah. our code. Mm. Sounds good. But one one thing I really hear is that uh, if we do this, um, then we end up with many small files in our yes. even a small solution. Yeah. Comparing to before we just put everything into a couple of classes, then is it better with
1: the small files? Right, right. Yeah, so, so this is a question I actually do get from time to time, and uh, I completely understand where this is coming from. Um, Often when you're trying to get an idea about, you know, how is a code base organized, uh, lots of people start to look at the file, you know, the list of files. And then if you see, as you just suggested here, if you see hundreds of files in a list, uh, that that looks like it's really overwhelming. Um, and But I think... It's a little bit of a mental hurdle you just have to get over. Um, You know, if you have this all of that spaghetti code that we talked about before, you might have files where if when you open it, it's 10,000 lines of code. Uh, But Mm -hmm. you only have like 10 of those files. And then people say, oh, that's a nice code base. There's only 10 files, even though you have, you know, Mm -hmm. 100,000 lines of code there. Um, But if you have 200 files of code, even though each of them is just like, 20 lines of code, then people say, oh my God, there's so many files. Yeah, but each file is really, really small. And, you know, ideally, each little, you know, code file is fairly self-contained. So if you're looking at that particular code file, um, ideally, you shouldn't have to be able to keep in your head all the rest of the hundreds of files. Mm. Um, so so that's one of the ideas with the single responsibility principle is that we keep things small and that there will be a lot of files. There will be a lot of classes um, and it, it looks scary, but it's it's really much easier to understand mm. once, you, once you sort of get over that problem.
0: So even if let's say the smaller files versus the larger file solution, even if the line number is the same, mm-hmm. But the smaller files is more scary for people. Yeah, that's my experience. Yeah, yeah. But if you really apply that, at least based on my experience, when I split the files into the smaller ones mm-hmm. and give them good namings, mm-hmm. especially, for example, if it's the select layer, I have a certain suffix so that ah, uh, yeah. the, my IDE would automatically, when I search with that uh, suffix, mm-hmm. then. All these small files just listed down for me, and I know from the naming exactly what that file is for. So I don't need to go through everything. I don't need to True. scroll up and down, right? Yeah. So the search already helped me a lot.
1: Yeah, mm. yeah. I so I I'm, we haven't really talked about. I'm not a Salesforce developer. I usually I, mm. I do most of my software development but at least the thing that things that people pay me to is C# development and there's we have this environment called visual studio and it has yeah. a lot of navigation you know features uh, built into it so if i'm looking at um, you know a code listing and and I wonder, you know, what is another class doing? There's a button, you know, it's just a keyboard mm. shortcut I can press to, and then it just takes me to that file. So I don't even mm. have to find the file in the file navigator. I can just sort of, you know, navigate around the system. So I suppose you have something that similar to that,
0: where we, you're using yeah. Visual Studio Code. So yeah. <laughs> which is oh, also, you do? Okay. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah, Visual Studio Code it
1: does yeah. a lot of those things as well. True. Cool. I think
0: the the first one, S, is more or less easier for us to understand mm-hmm. because it's a concrete class, and it's yeah. really simple to, to True. digest. True. The second one is
1: O, which is open-close principle, yes. right? What does that mean? Yeah, so that, that means that the class should be open for extensibility but closed for modification. Uh, so, so originally it was... Um, it was defined in terms of you know object oriented uh, inheritance hierarchy so so the idea here was that you could have a base class and um, if you did things right then um, you shouldn't ever have to you know go back and change the code of the base class well if you find a bug in it fine, you can go and, and fix the bug. But otherwise, um, if ideally, you could design the base class in such a way that if you needed to change some of its behaviors, there were enough hooks into it so that you could you know, create an, a class that inherited from the base class, and then it overrides, you know, one or two virtual methods, and then could, you know, you could change the behavior that way. Um, and you know, if when you have, you know, inheritance, which I be, believe you have in, in Apex as well, um, yeah, you can still do that. That's that's fine. Um, another another approach to do this is to use the strategy pattern, where you basically just, you know, instead of, of creating, you know, an inheritance hierarchy, you can Basically, use dependency injection and say, "Well, there's an interface that you inject into the, you know, what was before the base class, and then it calls, you know, methods on that, you know, interface, and then you can always exchange one implementation of the interface with another one." Um, but the basic idea with the open close principle is to say, "Well, okay, so once the base functionality is has been developed, uh, you shouldn't really have to go back and revisit that code um, because you you should be able to change." further on behaviors by adding new classes um that sort of you know extend on the things that need to to change and i, and I often find that quite useful in a in, you know something like a business context because um what often happens is uh, you, you hinted at this already that business rules change um so you often get this requirement from the rest of the business that they want you to you know implement that change of the business rule um, But I've I've often found myself in a situation where it's a good idea to keep the old business rules around still. So instead of going in and, you know, editing the business rules so that you only have the new one, you Mm -hmm. can sort of, if if at all possible, then, you know, leave the old business rules still in the code, but then have, you know, something that sits side by side, for example, maybe by extending, you know, a, a previous class. Um, and changing enough of the way that things are done so that you now have the new business rule, but, you know, you often run into these things where sooner or later someone will come and ask you to run some calculations based on the old business rule. And it's really nice to be able to say, yeah, okay, I can do that. That class, you know, is still around. So I'm just going to use this, you know, class over there which represents the old business rule and then I can mm. you know tell you okay this was you know this would be the result that we would have you know arrived at with the old business rule and here's the result we can mm. arrive with the new business rule you know it doesn't come up a lot but it happens and it's it's mm. just pretty nice to have those old, okay. older things around
0: it sounds a bit like you have a version controlling system <laughs> embedded in your code <laughs> yes
1: yes uh, I, yeah. uh, but, okay so I'm not saying you should keep all old code around it it's not I don't mean that uh but but sometimes it might uh, yeah be i get i get the
0: point it's it i just try to um you know visualize it so people can yes, really understand fair enough, yeah. so when you have the base class which is like a core of your original design yeah which is more kind of like um abstracted essential and then the new things kind of uh, grow on top of that if and if, 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 it, if possible. yeah
1: mm-hmm. yeah that's the idea anyway yeah Uh, Okay. So the solid
0: principle, the third one is called the Liskov substitution principle. It's really a mouthful one. And uh, it's a, it's a term that I can throw around in the office and Mm -hmm. uh, people
1: would think I'm smart. So what is Liskov substitution? (laughs) So, so this is really, this is probably the, the most abstract and the most academic one. Um, It's, and it's difficult to explain in a way that doesn't sound ab- abstract, but once you sort of get it, it took me many years to actually understand really what okay. it says. But once you get it, it's really, you just say, ah, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's really intuitively you know, easy okay. to grasp once you get it. Um, but in order to do that, we should, we should probably, let's see if we can do, it, do this short, where well, we need to talk a little bit about encapsulation, um, so um, the way that I understand encapsulation, I take a lot of my knowledge about encapsulation from Bertrand Meyer, who, who he wrote, uh, he developed this uh, programming language called Eiffel back in the in the eighties, and and he wrote a book about that, um, and um, and he had this notion about um, invariance, uh, and basically what we. Th- what we talk about when in, what we talk about invariance and invariant is, you know, some sort of description, you know, an abstract description of an object where you say, whatever the state of the object, these things will always be true. Um, so let's say mm-hmm. if you just have a simple entity, like, you know, you have a, a, you, know, a, um, a, person, a you know, a, a person, you know, a you a car, or you can, we could take a car. Uh, so, okay. so the car will probably have, you know, a, a, um, uh, they will probably have a color. They will be, uh, have a model. It will have a you know a manufacturer. It might have a, a vintage. You know a year it was manufactured. You know things like that. Uh, so you could have a class that you know that represents all of those things, and then you can say, well, one of the invariants, even of a simple, this is basically just like a you know a, a, a class that just holds some data, uh, but we could invent some invariants where we can say, well, but the the name of the manufacturer in the, is guaranteed to be there. You know, that could be an invariant where you say, okay, so manufacturer it might be, you know, this could be a Toyota, it could be a Ford, it could be a master, you know, whatever it is. But we guarantee that there's going to be exactly one manufacturer. We, we could, and that's an invariant. So you could say, well, you can change the manufacturer if you decide that, um, oh, it wasn't actually a Ford, it was a Toyota. You could go and change that manufacturer Property of the object, um, but you're not allowed to set it to null. You know mm. that's that's a just, that's just an example of an invariant.
0: So because so that property always exists, no matter what the invariant it is, you are guaranteed you can that's, get the value. An, of an that
1: invariant property. is a guarantee. That's another way to put it. So you say, well, an invariant. This is the, is the guarantee to say, well, this is always going to be true. There will be a manufacturer, or you could say if you make the um, the year of the model. Um, you would probably say something like, well, that's going to be a number and we guarantee that it's going to be a positive number because, you know, cars weren't manufactured in, you know, before, uh, you know, our current era. Um, so it's probably going to be a positive number.
0: So let's say if I'm a person, I uh-huh. need to use a car, of course I would construct a car instance. Yeah. So for that car, I would expect it can allow me to drive forward, drive backward and, you know, I fill the gas and I just use this car, maybe go to the uh, grocery to do some shoppings. But in the end, maybe you give me back as a Porsche car, a really fancy car, or you can give me a, a Ford car, which is an ordinary car. Even though the price is totally different, but they fulfill the same idea. They allow me to drive forward, backward, fill the gas. Right. So there's no surprise here. I can get extra benefit from those uh, subclasses. Like mm-hmm. uh, it charges more, it's more fancy, more colorful, but the base uh, things are already guaranteed yeah. for me always.
1: Yeah. So, okay. so, so, so this all depends on what you actually, what's, what's in the original contract. Um, but, but one thing we can say is if you, perhaps a little bit more realistic example, is not buying a car, but just, you know, renting a car when you're on vacation, because this happens sometimes, um, you know, you, 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 um, you make a reservation for a car when you go on vacation and you say, oh, I would like a, you know, a middle-sized car. And then you get there and they say, um, gee, we don't have any middle-sized cars le- left. Um, but, um, would you like a, you know, a bigger car? This actually sometimes happens. This is actually a pretty good example of, of the list of substitution principle in, in the, in the sense that your original contract, when you made the reservation was that you say, well, I would like to have a middle sized car and pay for a middle sized car, and then they say, "Well, you can't get a middle sized car, uh, but we can give you a bigger car and you still pay for the middle sized car because that was part of the contract, so they can't say you should pay more because you know your contract was you pay a certain amount, uh, but they can give you something better and mm. um, and that's still okay that's, so that's actually that's a, it's actually a fairly intuitive you know example uh, yeah, there. yeah. <laughs> let's use that
0: in the future for us. <laughs> So we spent some time already talking about list of substitution, yeah. and uh, your Pluralsight course has good code examples. So for people who really want to learn, you know what it really is about, I encourage people to to check the course again. Yeah. So Thank so you. the next one is called interface segregation. Yes. Principle. Yes. Again, it's a fluffy term <laughs> to me.
1: <laughs> yeah. This is—it's actually not a, a difficult rule to grasp. It basically just says that um, you shouldn't pass big objects around. You should pay, pass small objects around. So the interface segregation—it basically just means that you know, even if, if if an object, you might have something that is implemented with a fairly big class underneath, but you should be able to sort of look at that object from various different. Perspectives and only see parts of it, if you will. But but really, you know, it, when it comes down to the, pra- the practical matters of things, it, it, what it basically just says is that try to write your code so that you know, if you have an input argument that's you know that comes into you know as an argument to a method, and that you know is is an interface of some sort or an abstract base class, um, you should you should try to design. Those things so that they don't have, you know, dozens of or hundreds of methods. Try to design them so that methods that are available on the interface are basically only those things that the client code really needs to to talk to. So you know, if the client code needs to call three methods on an object, that should be the three methods that are available on on that interface and mm. nothing else. And you know, you can't. So this is one of the reasons why we, uh, why why we tend to. At least in C Sharp, we tend to um, favor interfaces over base classes because, you know, an object can implement as many interfaces as you'd like it to have, whereas it can only, you know, inherit from one base class. Uh, So this becomes a fairly good way to even give, you know, even if you have an object that has some level of complexity, you can give it, you know, different roles or different aspects by saying, well, it implements this interface and this interface and this interface. And then, you know, depending on what the client code needs, you can just represent that object as being, well, I'm, I'm just, now this object is just pretending to be that particular interface. And the fact that it also implements three other interfaces is not a, you know, important for the that particular client code to know. It becomes more useful when you couple that or when you t- take it in, in the connection with the the last, you know, part of the solid principles, the D, uh, which is the dependency inversion principle. Um, so now I'm just going to skip ahead for that. Yeah, go ahead. So, yeah. So, the, so the dependency inversion principle. Now, first of all, we shouldn't get too confused with dependency injection, um, mm-hmm. They're sort of related, but not quite. Dependency in re- injection is probably more related to the open-close principle, actually, than the dependency inversion principle. But dependency inversion principle basically just says that um abstractions should not depend on implementation details. Implementation details should depend on abstractions. So so the idea here is that you sort of define your abstractions first. So that would be your interfaces or your abstract base classes. And and they can't or they shouldn't depend on implementation details so if you want to define an abstraction for how do you talk to your database for example um you can define a you know an interface that says well i can query um this my database object and i can get some things you know returned that will actually be you know a real database query or i can save something into my database object um, but Part of the interface defi- definition shouldn't include specific things like, you know, the, the, um, the SDK f- for talking to, a, you know, an Oracle database or, you know, a SQL Server database or whatever it is. Yeah.
0: I, I try to, you know, put my experience so here is that in Apex, we usually create a so-called a wrapper class. Mm-hmm. On top of like the database connection. Yeah. So yeah. later, when you need to change the database connection from SQL to Oracle, uh-huh. then just to swap the inside of right. the wrapper. Yes. Right.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So so that's that's a fairly common way to do that, and that's that's perfectly fine because you have. You know, each, each database technology tends to come with a specific SDK. So, you know, to talk to SQL Server, which is what I usually do, there's an SDK for that, and that's built into .NET. And then if you want to talk to Oracle, you you have another SDK for that that looks a lot like the other one, but not quite. And, you know, there's another one for MySQL and so on. Um, so all of those SDKs come with very specific concrete types that enable you to talk to that particular kind of database. But then as you say, you you create a wrapper. I like to use the word adapter because that's actually a design pattern from from the design patterns book, but same thing. Mm -hmm. You 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 create a class that implements the the abstractions that you've created. And the way that it implements the abstractions that we've created is then by you know using those specific SDKs, you know, depending on which database you want to talk to. Yeah. So that's that's a very common way of doing that. And that's yeah, that's that's still how I do it today, yeah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> so go, yeah, if we go back to the the interface segregation principle, mm-hmm. yeah. when I watch your videos, there's mm-hmm. one thing really uh, changed a lot of my perception about yeah. OO design is that um, a lot of programmers tend to have a concrete class as, um, let's say, the uh, circle database connection, we have save, we have read. And on top of that, we generate interfaces. Right. So we, from the concrete class, we created abstraction. Yeah. But in your video, you said we shouldn't have done that. We should more from the client side, which invokes this concrete or the abstraction. And from that to define how you design your interface, yes. which makes your interface tend to be smaller. mm mm-hmm. So, for example, maybe the client doesn't need a read method. it just does the save method. Then yeah. why do you have the read method as a part yep. of the interface? You right? don't. You don't have to, yeah. That made me think a lot. And it resonates. the early days when I read the Java documentation, there's mm-hmm. a lot of this I read, I save, I what, whatever, really mm-hmm. small ones with only yeah. one method inside. Yeah. I couldn't understand why people are doing that. Right. And then once it's a concrete class, there are multiple interfaces, yeah. you know, get implemented yeah. in that. Yeah. So this is the reason.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You basically explained it now, but that's your, and you're, you also ex- basically this, you know, explain why I wanted to talk about the dependency inversion principles in order to explain the interface segregation principle, because once you've, once you you know, you arrive at the conclusion via the dependency inversion principle that you should only define the methods that you actually need. The idea from the inter- interface segregation principle that you should only, you know, that an interface should only include the methods that a client actually needs. That's sort of just, you know, that's almost just a byproduct of doing the dependency inversion principle hmm. following that one. So you explained okay. it, you know, just as well as I could have done that uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I, it's just based on my experience. Yeah. But it's true, I, and I think that's probably one of the most important things to take away from this. Uh, you know, interfaces should not be designed by starting with a concrete class and then, you know, extracting the interface from from concrete classes. That tend to lead towards all sort of of, of pain, hmm. if you will. Um,
0: I'd yeah. say 90% of developers around me are doing that. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, know, I know.
1: It's it's mm. a very common thing to do. But that's why it's called the dependency inversion principle. It, because you sort of invert things, you you sort of turn things on their head and say, well no no, we define the interface first and then we figure out how to implement it later on. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So let's
0: try to wrap up the mm-hmm. solid principle. So from what I understand, we started with single responsibility principle, which is to break down your concrete implementation into small pieces. Yeah. And then we talk about the, the, the following four is more or less about abstractions, how you design the interfaces, how you design the base class, subclasses, which is again to break things into smaller pieces. Yeah. So it, to me, like, the OO designs to break things into small pieces yes. and then figure out how to construct them in in an elegant way, yeah. so that the code is not rigid, it's not fragile. Yes, yeah, well put. Okay. So I, I graduated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> you paid attention. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's that's really interesting. But the thing is, how many years do I need to spend on this? To you know, this is art. It's not that easy to, to get everything figured out.
1: Um, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I think, um, and I know you want to talk about functional programming as well. I think one of the reasons why I've become more interested in functional programming the last many years is that I agree that doing, you know, object oriented design, there's a lot of art to it. As you, as you say, um, so you definitely can learn, but it takes many years. And, and I think one of the problems here is that there's, um, there isn't that much tangible guidance, if you will. There's, there's a lot of, of you know high level ideas. Um, but how you actually make those things into the actual code that you're writing, that still takes a lot of practice. And, Hmm. and I don't want to, you know, scare anyone away from that because I think it's, it's valuable to do. Um, but, but it, it does take a lot of time. And I think the, the fastest way you can do that is if you can somehow find some sort of mentor to attach yourself to, you can probably, you know, save yourself a couple of years of figuring all of those things out for yourself. Um, but the next best thing, obviously, is to find you know a book or you you found a video course, or whatever suits your learning style, and see if you can learn from 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 other people there. Um, but but it's still there's still a lot of of you know experience that you just need to accumulate in order to figure out how to do these things. Okay, cool. um, and. And, and the reason why I've become interested in functional programming is that there, there's a certain—I wouldn't say all functional programming—but there's a certain subculture in in functional programming that takes a more, you know, disciplined, more mathematical approach to programming, and sort of say, well, okay, we can describe, you know, programming in terms of some, something that looks like mathematics a lot, and that that gives us some. Well, it actually narrows down your your options of doing things because you sort of have to behave in a certain way, but that also gives you some rules of thumbs that say, well, yeah, your code ought to look like this. Um, so, so the, it gives you a little bit of, I, I think, so my thesis here is that, uh, but I would like to do the experiment, but I, I would really, you know, if you imagine that you take, you know, a hundred young people who've never learned programming before and just, you know, randomly divide them into two groups and then you teach, one group object-oriented programming and the other one functional programming, and then you see after a few months or after a year, who can actually you know do more with programming after you know with object-oriented learning it from scratch, all with functional programming. I, I would guess that. Functional programming would actually be easier to learn. But the problem is that people, you know, you hear over and over again and people say that, you know, functional programming is really difficult to learn. And that's because, well, if you already learned imperative programming or object-oriented programming, well, then it's hard because you sort of need to unlearn a, a lot of the things. It is yeah. a different paradigm, yeah. But one of, but to come back to your question, um, one of the, so one of the things that I've been interested in doing for the last many years is that, We can take a lot of the ideas from functional programming and sort of pull them back into object-oriented programming to produce a a more... you know, disciplined a more structured way of approaching object oriented programming, if you will. So there's I have lots of that on my blog. If you just, you know, <laughs> scan my blog for the last few years, you yeah. see a lot of that stuff going on. I you know, but I I I publish a, an article every week, so there's a lot there.
0: I I would definitely <laughs> leave uh, a link on our show notes. No, that's a personal yep. blog. Yeah. <laughs> This conversation continues on the next episode See you next week